And please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is a unique psalm, as you will see tonight as we study it. There really is no other like it. I'm going to read to us Psalm 45. Uh, Please stand in honor of the word of God. Psalm 45. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along, as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Now that we've finished the book of Romans, uh, I've been uh, teaching from the book of Psalms on Wednesday evenings, and the way I'm doing it is, uh, we last time we did a psalm from book one, uh, this time we're doing a psalm from book, book two, next time will be a psalm from book three, and, and so forth. And uh, for each book, I'm just taking the next psalm that I have not preached or taught previously. As I'm seeking to uh, preach through the whole counsel of God. So, following that system, uh, we come this morning, or sorry, this, this evening to Psalm 45. I did put a question in the bulletin that asks, What is this psalm about? I hope that you read it prior to our gathering together. Uh, we've just read it together. Uh, what would you say this psalm is about? Debbie, a wedding song. Appropriate for royalty, it does point forward to Christ. Anyone else? Praying. A song of love, as we see there in the inscription. Anyone else? Want to add anything? All right. Uh, This psalm is found in book two of the Psalms. Psalms is divided into five books. And it appears that each book was compiled at a different point in Israel's history. And this is in book two, uh, which started with Psalm 42 and goes through Psalm 72. And if you look at the inscriptions at the different Psalms in book two, Uh, you will find that in this book, uh, some of the psalms are ascribed to the sons of Korah, as this one is. The sons of Korah uh, were a group of Levites. They had responsibilities, uh, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Uh, Some were written by Asaph, who also was a Levite. 
some by David, and some by Solomon. Uh, so just looking at uh, who the, the authors are that are mentioned uh, does, does give us some sense of the historical time when it was compiled. It would have to be after um, the last one, sometime after the last one was written. Uh, probably book two was compiled during the reign of Hezekiah or that of Josiah, uh, kings who worked to bring revival to Judah. The inscription says, To the choir master, according to lilies, uh, it would sound like the tune that this at first was put to, was a tune called lilies. To the choir master, according to lilies, a masculine, that word masculine has just been translated, transliterated from the Hebrew. It's been left as a Hebrew word. It's not been translated for us because it's unclear how that should be translated. A masculine of the sons of Korah, so the sons of Korah wrote the psalm, a love psalm. So it tells us something about what this psalm is about. That is a love psalm. This psalm is a beautiful poem. The psalms are poetry, Hebrew poetry. This is a beautiful poem that shows it was prepared on the occasion of a royal wedding, evoking all the sights, Sounds, movement, splendor, and emotion of such an important occasion. The king here in this, that is addressed in this psalm, is one of the sons of David, meaning one of the descendants of, of David who sat on the throne. And uh, this king points forward to the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, just as David himself. Uh, points forward to his greater son, Jesus Christ. That the king who is addressed here is not David uh, can be seen in verse 16. In verse 16, uh, the, the poet uh, speaks to the king saying, In place of your fathers shall be your sons. We'll talk more about that later, but it refers to the king's fathers, who also would have sat on the throne, and then it refers to his sons who will sit on the throne. Being that David's father did not sit on the throne, uh, it, this would seem to indicate that this is sometime after David, one of David's sons, one of his descendants. Uh, verses 6 through 7 are quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, as messianic, um, as speaking of the Christ who would come. And so we need to keep that in mind as we go through the psalm. And we will look at Hebrews chapter 1 uh, to see how it refers to this a little bit later on. Uh, the king's bride appears to be a foreign princess. Uh, she is called upon to forget her people and her father's house. Uh, notice that in verse 10. Verse 10, Here, O daughter, the poet is addressing the king's bride. Here, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. That really only makes sense uh, if she's not an Israelite, uh, if she is a foreign princess. She is called a princess in verse 13, where we read, All glorious is the princess in her chamber. Uh, this wedding, uh, that is the, the scene uh, depicted uh, in this psalm, was pivotal for the kingdom, uh, which could be ruled in the future by one of the royal couple, couple's future sons. Any wedding of the king is significant for the nation. Now, before we uh, look uh, in detail at this psalm, I want us to be thinking about the main responsibilities of a king, uh, being that kingship is an important idea here in this psalm. So I put a question in the bulletin to ask, what were the main responsibilities of a king? Well, verses 3 through 5, 
um, there is the responsibility of protecting the nation, protecting the kingdom uh, from its enemies. That was a, a main responsibility of the king. He would lead the army uh, in protecting the nation from its enemies. Caleb? Alright, so the king who represented the Lord in Israel was to stand for truth, meekness, and righteousness. What else? Daniel. Leading the nation in righteousness. The king was the leader whom the Lord appointed over his people. And he was to lead the people in the Lord's righteousness, in the Lord's ways. Anything else that we can add to that? You, you can you can think beyond this, this psalm. I don't have to limit it to this psalm. Well, right. So, punishment. Think of justice. The king was to enforce uh, law and order. He was to enforce justice. Uh, think about Solomon, how people would bring uh, their cases to Solomon for Solomon to decide. Uh, think about that, that, that case that is recorded for us soon after Solomon became king, uh, where there were two ladies, and they both had babies, and, and one of them died in the night. And there was a dispute between these two mothers of, of who the living baby belonged to. And so they brought their case to Solomon. And Solomon used the wisdom that the Lord gave him to decide that dispute. Um, he was an enforcer of, of justice. So those are main responsibilities of the king. Uh, protecting the nation. Yes, Robert. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. God had given that great promise to David that his descendants would never cease to have a descendant who would be on the throne. The throne wouldn't pass to another house, uh, but David's descendants it would be a line of kings that would come forth from David. Right, let's, let's take a close look um, at this psalm. Uh, as we were saying, the Davidic king was to rule God's people as God's representative. Uh, the psalm begins in verse 1 uh, with the poet. Uh, the, the poet writes about uh, um, writing this poem. Look at verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Uh, he is tasked uh, with writing about a pleasing theme. Uh, that will become very apparent what that theme is as we go through this psalm. Uh, he, this this, this psalm overflows from his heart as the Holy Spirit uh, speaks through him, as the Spirit inspires him uh, in the writing of this psalm. In verses 2 through 9, we see the king. Look at verse 2. The poet says to the king, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. He says that grace is poured upon the king's lips. Meaning that the king's words bring blessing to the people of his realm. Verse 3. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall 
under you. Notice in verse 4 that it says, In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Think of how very different these causes are from the causes that drive worldly kings. Worldly kings seek power. Worldly kings seek wealth. Worldly kings seek all kinds of other things. But here we have a Davidic king, and the poet says to him, In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. God had set the nation of Israel apart from the nations unto himself. And they were to be holy as God himself is holy. And these three causes are important in God's kingdom. Truth, or it also could be translated faithfulness, and meekness, or sometimes it's translated humility and righteousness, uh, or it could sometimes be translated justice. Truth, meekness, and righteousness, all important in God's kingdom, in God's sight. And the king was to lead his kingdom in these. The Davidic king was to lead the kingdom in truth, in meekness, and in righteousness. His kingdom was to be a place where these flourished. And the poet is calling upon the king to protect the kingdom from its enemies for this cause. Protect the nation from its enemies that truth would flourish that meekness would flourish, that righteousness would flourish. This is the realm in which a God is, is, has, has um, created a people for himself. God had formed the nation by redemption, redeeming them out of bondage in Egypt and establishing his covenant with them at Sinai. And, and he required uh, that, that they would live in a way that glorified him. And so this nation is unlike any other nation. This kingdom is unlike any other kingdom. This is the place where the Lord is extending his rule over his people. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, defend this nation against its enemies. Verse 4 goes on, let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. The sense of it is found in the NIV's translation, let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let's continue in verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's really striking that here in verse 6, the poet says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He has been addressing the Davidic king, and in the verses that follow, he continues to address the Davidic king. It almost sounds as if he's addressing the Davidic king as God. Your throne, O God, is forever and Ever. Now, these verses, 6 and 7, are quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. So I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. Now, let's get the context. We're going to go back to verse 2. Notice that it speaks of Christ speaks of his exalted position. Verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What did he sit on? And he sat down on the right hand of the majesty. Uh-huh. What did he sit on? 
a throne, the heavenly throne. He sat down at the right hand of the the majesty on high. He was seated as king. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That, in the Psalms, was addressed to Christ, the coming Messiah. The Lord never spoke to angels like this, only to the coming Christ. You are my son, today I have begotten you, that prophecy of Christ. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. A quotation from the Davidic covenant. Promises that God made to David that included the son of David, who would be a son to God, to whom God would be a father. This was spoken of the relationship that God would have with the coming son of David, that God would have with the Messiah. God never spoke in this way to the angels. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So he's quoting these different passages from the Old Testament that pertain to Christ, that speak of, of Christ's exalted, superior position. Verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Quotation from our psalm, verses 6 through 7 of Psalm 45, saying that these words spoken by the poet are addressed to were addressed to the coming Messiah. Were addressed to the coming Son of David, Jesus Christ. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The poet was speaking of Christ. So you can come back to Psalm 45. So we have to keep that in mind as we are studying this this psalm. The verses 6 and 7 point forward to Christ. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the poet in verse 6 of our psalm goes beyond what was true of the Davidic king of his day and speaks of the ultimate Davidic king. There really is no explanation for what he wrote, other than this was by the Holy Spirit. As as we read in the New Testament, the Old Testament writers wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they didn't always understand how these things were going to be fulfilled. They they, they were curious. They were desirous to know how how will these things be be fulfilled. He was speaking, writing beyond what he comprehended. The Messiah would be both divine, as we see in verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the Messiah at the same time would be God's representative, as we see in verse 7, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. So, the Messiah can be referred to as God, because he would be divine, also in, in speaking to the Messiah, you can say, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. The Messiah would be God's representative. And and how that comes together can only be understood when we understand the Trinity. That God is a Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the Father sent the Son, who became man, who was born a son of David, The Father sent his Son as his representative. Now, 
the messianic element uh, in Psalm 45 does not deny that a Davidic king from the day of the poet is in mind throughout most of the psalm. I want you to compare the, I put in your notes, a quotation from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, the Davidic covenant. In the Davidic covenant, uh, we see both messianic and non-messianic elements uh, tied together. Look at that passage. When your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Here in the, these promises, God is speaking of the descendants who will come forth from David, who will sit on the throne. Some of the things that he says here clearly pertain to the son of David, Jesus Christ, and some of them clearly do not. In the middle there he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That, that would apply to all of David's descendants and certainly to Christ that's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, the verses that we read uh, as applying to Christ. But then the next line, or the line before that, um, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. How, how can that be seen to be fulfilled in anyone but Christ? Well, only Christ will sit on the throne forever. But the, one, the line before that, he shall build a house for my name. Clearly Solomon would do that. If you go forward uh, beyond what I just read, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of uh, the sons of men, that clearly cannot refer to Christ because Christ was without sin and will forever be without sin. So things are said here um, in this promise of this Davidic covenant. Things are said that apply to, to the Messiah. Things are said that apply to David's sons who preceded the Messiah. Um, it is all woven together. And then we have the same thing in Psalm 45. It's all woven together. Clearly, verse 6 uh, speaks of the son of David, the Messiah. Uh, but most of this uh, uh, applies to someone before the Messiah. That the, that, that the poet knew, who reigned in the poet's lifetime. Who, who had a wedding in the poet's lifetime that the poet has in mind. Now, looking here in, at these verses again, in verse 6, the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Christ's scepter will be a scepter of uprightness. His scepter speaks of his rule, of his reign. His scepter will be a scepter of uprightness. Every king that preceded Christ failed please God at different times. Even David himself, a man after God's own heart, he failed to please God. In the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. But Christ, his scepter, will be a scepter of perfect uprightness. With, with, with no shadow of wickedness or evil, no taint of evil at all. His scepter will be a scepter of uprightness, showing his perfect love of righteousness and perfect hatred of wickedness. And the Old Testament Davidic kings were to seek to do the same. The Old Testament Davidic kings were to seek to rule in uprightness. They, they were to love righteousness. They were to hate wickedness, which is so important 
for a king. For a king who represents God to the people, who rules over the people on God's behalf, so important that he rule in uprightness, that he, he hate what is evil, and he love what is right in God's sight. The scepter would be a scepter of uprightness, showing his perfect love of righteousness and hatred of wickedness. Verse 8. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Clearly we've come back to the, the wedding scene with the Davidic king who was alive in the poet's day. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. You see here that in preparation for this royal wedding, the king's robes have been perfumed with fragrant oil made from a mixture of myrrh and aloes and cassia. We read that from ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Ivory palaces are palaces that are decorated with lavish amounts of ivory. So we have here a, quite a combination of fragrances, sounds, and sights at this royal wedding. Continue in verse 9. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. In other words, dignitaries from other political states are in attendance at this wedding. And the bride has been presented to the king. We see here, at the king's right hand now stands the queen in gold of Ophir. The queen, the bride, is adorned with gold of Ophir. Ophir, as we, we find from some other passages, was located outside the land of Israel. And, and gold would be imported into Israel from Ophir. It was a very fine gold that came from Ophir. Now, this gold may have been worked into the bride's dress, and she may have worn jewelry and a crown made from this gold, the gold of Ophir, this finest of gold. Well, the king is quite the king uh, who is being married here. And this is quite a wedding that is being described to us. Having spoken of the king, the poet now gives his attention to the bride, starting in verse 10. Look with me. Hear, O daughter. So the poet addresses the king's bride as daughter. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. The fact that the poet addresses the king's bride as daughter would suggest the poet's advanced age. Now, the poet exhorts the bride, forget your people and your father's house. In marriage, husband and wife must leave father and mother in order to form a new family unit. You see that when God instituted marriage back in Genesis chapter 2. I put it in Genesis 2.24 where Moses, as he writes of God instituting marriage uh, in bringing Adam and Eve together uh, as husband and wife, uh, Moses says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is God's design. Here it speaks about a man leaving his father and mother but it's also implied that the wife must leave her father and mother as well. They leave father and mother in order to form a new family unit. In order to form a one flesh relationship. The only relationship in the Bible spoken of as a one flesh relationship. The marriage relationship between husband and wife. And to, to form this new unit, they must leave father and Mother, the poet says in our text, forget your people and your father's house. He has more in mind than just leaving father and mother. You, you see that when he talks about forgetting your people. 
He's exhorting the bride, which we saw, what we already talked about, appears to be a foreign princess. He exhorts the bride to be like Ruth and to form new loyalties. What nationality was Ruth? Daniel? A Moabite. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, is she a Moabite? Naomi? Naomi is an Israelite. And Naomi was living in Moab because of the famine that had been in Israel. There had been a famine because of the days of the judges. There was a famine because of God's judgment, God's curse. The people of Israel were walking in grave disobedience against God. There was a famine. Naomi and her family goes to Moab because there's food there. In Moab, Naomi's sons marry Moabite women, but their husbands die. Now Naomi is coming back. She comes back as a widow to Bethlehem with no sons, no one to take care of her. One of her daughters-in-law is going to stay in Moab, and even though Naomi encourages Ruth to stay there and find another husband, Ruth refuses to stay there. We read in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Since your people shall be my people, I am no longer going to consider myself a Moabite. I'm going to consider myself an Israelite. I'm professing loyalty to your people, the people of Israel. I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm make your people my people. Your God, my God. The same idea here in Psalm 45. When the poet says in verse 10 to this foreign princess who's marrying the Davidic king, forget your people and your father's house. Make the king's people your people. The king's God, your God. Become an Israelite. It goes on in the second half of verse 11. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. Though the king would be her husband, at the same time he was her king. And so the poet says to her, since he is your Lord, bow to him. Submit to him as the king that he is. Now, the poet brings up gifts uh, that the bride will receive. Speaks of gifts coming from Tyre. Verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 12. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. Tyre was a great trading center in Phoenicia. Because it was a great trading center, it was a wealthy city. Tyre was an old trading partner of David and Solomon. Because of the new queen's relationship with the king, dignitaries from Tyre will give her large gifts, either as wedding gifts or in the future. Verse 13. All glorious is the princess in her chamber. With robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. Here the poet goes back in time uh, before the procession from the bridal chamber with the king to the king's palace. You know, back in verse 9, uh, we saw the king standing together with his bride. Now we go back in time. Verse 13, the princess is in her chamber, awaiting 
the king to come for her. It would have been customary uh, for the king to have led a procession to his bride's chamber. And now, here, she is led from her chamber to the king. You see that in verse 14. In many colored robes, she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. She's led to the king. She's led to her groom, similar to how God brought Eve to Adam. We read in Genesis 2.22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now this bride is brought to her groom, the king. Uh, she has with her a virgin companions as her bridesmaids. And they may also be her permanent attendants. Verse 15. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. So we have a procession here in verse 15. Led by the king and his bride. Uh, he has received his bride after she was led to him. Now together they lead the procession to the king's palace. What a joyous, joyous occasion. The psalm ends with the poet's blessing. Look at verse 16. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Here, the poet is specifically speaking to the king. Because you notice in verse 16, the word your and the word you. Uh, in Hebrew, those pronouns are masculine singular. So, they are referring, here, the poet again is addressing the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. The idea here is that the king's sons shall follow the in the footsteps of the king's forefathers, continuing the kingly line. Well, having mentioned the king's future sons, the psalm becomes messianic again in verse 17. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. The poet is saying, with this royal wedding song that he is composing, uh, the poet will cause the king's name to be remembered. But what he, what he says here clearly goes beyond the Davidic king of his day. Because he says, not only does he say that your name will be remembered in all generations, but he says, therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. That can really only rightly be said of the Son of David, Jesus Christ. That nations will praise him forever and ever. Well, we cannot read this song without thinking about the future wedding of the greater son of David. I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 6. Revelation speaks of what will happen in the future uh, surrounding the return of Jesus Christ. And in verse 6, we read that I heard, that John heard in uh, what God and God gave him visions of what would happen in the future. John's recording what he sees and hears. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! What does that Hebrew word hallelujah mean? Not highest praise. But praise is, is, is there. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Who is the Lamb? Jesus Christ. Why is he called the Lamb? He was slain at the cross for our sins. 
This is quite a king. The king came to die. The king came to give up his life upon a cross in order to give his life. And he was exalted. But he will bear his wounds, the scars, and the nails, spear wound. He will bear those scars forever. Eternal reminder that he is the Lamb who gave himself to redeem us. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. So, Christ is going to have a marriage ceremony. He has a bride uh, who has been made ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are the true words of God. We see in the New Testament is that Christ is preparing a bride for himself. He prepares a bride by redeeming a people for himself and sanctifying that people. It's not an individual person who is his bride. It's the company of the redeemed who are the bride of the Lamb. As believers, we are included in that bride. So there is coming a day when Christ will return and there will be a marriage supper, a celebration of the marriage between Christ and his church, between Christ and his redeemed people. The church will be united to Christ forever. We will forever be with the Lord as a people whom he has made pure spotless in radiance. What a glorious day that will be. We cannot read Psalm 45 without thinking of the future marriage of the son of David, his bride, the redeemed, the company of the redeemed. Well, this psalm that we have studied in a beautiful way, brings together the Davidic king, the blessing of marriage. Marriage is a blessing. Marriage is something good that God instituted in Genesis chapter 2. Brings together the Davidic king, the blessing of marriage, Christ and his majesty. Yeah, the Davidic king of the poet's day uh, was described as uh, being robed with majesty. He's a majestic figure. But how much more majestic Christ is. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The perfect King. How much more majestic Christ is. And the psalm also brings together with those three Christ's glorious bride. The King has a bride. Christ has a bride. In Ephesians 5, 25-27, we read about Christ's glorious bride. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here, husbands are instructed how they are to love their wives. Notice how Christ would love our wives as Christ loved the church. Notice how Christ loves the church. He gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify her. What does it mean to sanctify? To make holy. To make holy. That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. We were polluted by our sin. But Christ has cleansed us by the washing of water with 
the word. He continues to cleanse us. There was an initial cleansing when we were saved, and there's a continual, ongoing cleansing in the Christian life. We've been cleansed by the washing of water with the word. He's using his word to sanctify us, to make us holy, not just in our position, but in the way that we live. That he might present the church to himself. It's going to happen on a future day, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And we may be very mindful of our sins that we commit as Christians. We're very well aware of indwelling sin that we struggle with. But we are assured that we are part of the company of redeemed ones. That Jesus Christ will make to be without any spot, any wrinkle, any blemish. The church will be made radiant. The church will be made glorious. A glorious bride for our Lord Jesus Christ. Understand from our psalm and from its fulfillment in Christ that we were created and have been redeemed for something far greater than the things for which the world lives. The world lives for things that perish. The world lives for things that that will not last. Sometimes they don't last a day. They certainly won't last into eternity. Usually don't last a lifetime. The world lives for all these temporal things that really cannot satisfy in a lasting way. But we have been created and redeemed for something far greater than what the world lives for. And this psalm shows us a faint glimmer of it. A glorious scene here of a majestic king. Taking to himself a glorious, beautiful bride. United in a glorious, royal, majestic wedding. We read this and go, this is beautiful. This is glorious. This is wonderful. And notice that it's just giving us a faint glimmer of what is in store. A faint glimmer of what we've been created for. A faint glimmer of what we've been redeemed for. On that future day when Jesus Christ will return. And we as the church will be made pure and spotless. And joined to Christ to forever be with him. That's what you were created for. That's what you were redeemed for. That eternal relationship. In fellowship with the church, a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. A relationship that will be permanent, eternal, that nothing will ever hinder, nothing will ever break or destroy, that we will forever be with the Lord in glory. But do you have any questions or comments about anything that we've seen? In this psalm or in the the passages that we looked at. Andre. Okay. the Psalms, uh, when they make these statements, um, like the Medinah, they become prophetic. Could it be that they understood what Moses was referring to? Because we, uh, you know, we have Jesus when um, he's speaking to the Pharisees. He says, um, in certain scriptures, right? So I know you think they have like they he said, no one Moses, but who the Moses spoke of. Mm-hmm. Right? Could it be that they just they simply understood? And so when they write in these Psalms, they, they kind of interject that, like, oh, we know that the true king is coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's right about the true king. So certainly, you know, the, the, the psalmists, um, the prophets who wrote in the Old Testament, certainly they, 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 they know the previous revelation that's been given. Of, of, of Christ. They know that a prophet is coming uh, who's going to be like 
Moses, but greater than Moses. Um, that they know that a seed of the woman is coming, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Um, that they know the Davidic, after the Davidic covenant has been given, they know the Davidic covenant, and it's promised that David's descendants, uh, it seems like a single descendant, will sit on his throne forever. They, 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 they know these things. Yeah. So they, they, they do, as, as the Spirit uh, inspires their writing of more uh, things that point forward to Christ, they, they have some idea of these things, but, but they don't fully understand how it's all going to work out. So Peter talks about that, how they long to see and the angels long to see and, and so forth. But then you have Christ's disciples. They, they, they knew their Old Testaments to a certain degree, but then when, when Christ comes and he's crucified, then their hopes are dashed because they just didn't understand that the Messiah would suffer, even though that was there in Isaiah 53. But then the, but the resurrection and then the coming of the Spirit that, that, that veil, so to speak, is removed and they, they understand. We're still learning. <laughs> Anything else? Debbie? Um, I, I don't. I don't see that. I think I see it more as. And, and think about the warning. It's kind of striking here that the Davidic king is marrying a foreign princess, because in the law, there was a warning against you know foreign wives, especially a warning to the king against marrying foreign wives because of how, how they could easily turn the heart of the king away from the Lord to foreign gods. Um, so, yeah, I, I see it here simply, Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. You know, those people that she's being told to forget are, are, are pagans who worship false gods. And she's told to make a break with those worshipers of false gods. And now be loyal to a new people, the people of God. Is there in? Also, uh, it's all a reminder that God's plan is going to be interwoven with Jesus. And that even for what many would consider not necessarily this, it's not a mundane event, it's like the wedding of the king. Even in this event, God is still pointing forward. Yes. The Bible is a historical book. God, God has acted in history to carry out his redemptive plan. Yes. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for sending Jesus. Uh, who is the fulfillment of the promises and the types, the foreshadows in the Old Testament. Uh, we praise you, Lord Jesus, as King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, we look forward to that day when you will return for your bride. We pray, Father, that you would find us ready. We pray, Father, that, that you would enable us to be faithful uh, to you. Lord, may you make us holy as you are holy in preparation for the coming of the King. And uh, we, we, we bow our lives before you, Lord Jesus. Enable us to live lives for your glory. 
submitting to you in the heart as the the bride here was instructed to to bow before the king because he is your Lord. You know, you, Lord Jesus, are our Lord. May our lives be bowed before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.